right. Well, we are in part three of our series, Potential. Uh, we're studying the life of David. And I want to just remind you this morning, because I, I don't know how you walked in. I don't know how your week went. It might have been a great week, but it could have been a hard week. I don't know the thoughts you had about yourself, but I just want to remind you of something that's true about you, that God placed greatness within you. Like, inside of you is this incredible potential, incredible gifts and talents that are, are waiting to be unleashed and that a world desperately needs. Friend, would you be careful that you don't undersell the God who made you? And so we've been asking this question, how do you live in to your God-given potential? Like, like if that's really true, how do you unleash the greatness that God placed within you? I've heard it said that uh, the worst thing that could happen is to die with potential. You don't want someone at your funeral saying, well, she had potential. A little late. Well, what is potential? Uh, One dictionary defines potential this way, having or showing the capacity to develop into something in the future. It's something that is in essence there, but it's not yet been developed. It's not yet been realized. Your potential is your unused strength. Your potential is your hidden talents, your untapped abilities and capabilities. There is, a great, there is a great wealth of potential locked inside of you. And this morning, I want to look at, and we're going to talk about one of the things, one of the principles to unleashing your God-given potential that we often overlook, that we miss consistently. I think perhaps it's because we live in the Western world as we have the American bootstrap, do-it-on-my-own mentality. I think it's often overlooked because we're living in such a rapid, fast-paced, media-driven environment. We're living in a surface society, and so we're spread thin, and, and we miss this principle. Uh, the sermon title this morning's Simply this, it's surround yourself. Would you say that with me? Surround yourself. Now we're going to try it again one more time. Surround yourself. Come on. Good job. Because here's the principle in a nutshell. Who you surround yourself will either limit or unleash your God-given potential. Who you surround yourself. And what we tend to believe is we're above that. We're better than that. We don't need anyone. I'm good on my own. Said another way, the friendships in your life will determine the potential of your life. Who you surround yourself with. Like the friends in your life. The mentors in your life. To unleash your God-given potential, it's not just enough for you to look internal and go, how do I develop it? There is this principle woven into the fabric of our being that you're surrounded by people that help unleash or, on the flip side, hinder who you will become. 
I've heard it said this way, show me your friends and I can show you your future. The Bible says, and it's an old adage, that bad company corrupts good, anyone? Character morals. This is the reason we're teaching on this, because obviously you haven't heard that old adage. Now, African proverb says it this way, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Robin Sharma, he, he writes this, the bigger the dream, the more important the team. Like if you have a dream for your life, if you have a dream for your future, if you have a dream and you're looking out there, the bigger it is, what so he's saying, is the more important the team surrounding you. And in my household, we say it this way, that teamwork makes the and if you've been at any leadership meetings, you know that I say that all the time. My kids say that all the time. Like, like the bigger the dream, the more important the team. Because who you surround yourself with will either limit or unleash your God-given potential. Solomon, David's son, would pen it this way. Walk with the wise and become wise. For a companion of fools suffer harm. Like, walk with the wise. You want to be wiser? Get around wise people. Look at your friends. Which direction are they pulling you? Because the friendships in your life will determine the potential of your life. I love this visual. Uh, There is a horse called the Belgian draft horse. And I'm sure you've studied that. In fact, this week you're probably hanging out going, I need to look up the Belgian draft horse just because it sounds interesting and fun. Well, the Belgian draft horse is much like a Clydesdale, but much stronger. This is the strongest horse in our uh, world. And what's really fascinating is this horse was originally bred for two things. It was originally bred for war and for work. Uh, and as it being bred for this, it, it, it became the strongest horse that we have, and it has an immense amount of pull power. It can pull a ton of weight. In fact, one horse can pull 8,000 pounds all by itself. Now, here's what's fascinating. If you take one Belgian draft horse and then yoke it up to a second just do simple math, you would think that that horse would be able to then pull double the weight, 16,000 pounds. Now, what's interesting is you take those two horses that are not trained, they haven't been taught how to work well together, just put them yoked together, they can actually pull 24,000 pounds. And what's fascinating is if you take those two horses and you begin to train them, begin to teach them how to work together, how to pull together, they can pull 32 thousand pounds. Two horses together can pull four times what one horse can on its own. And it is a picture for us when we're talking about our God-given potential. And could it be that some of you have limited your God-given potential because you can think it, you can do it all on your own. And you're like, yeah, I can pull 8,000 pounds, but you had no idea that together You had no idea that if you said, man, if I begin to link up, if I begin to think about those I surround myself with, if I begin to think strategically about the friends that I let, the mentors that I let into my life, if I begin to take that on, man, my potential, what I thought was here, is actually, whoa, way here, and I had no idea. Show me your friends, and I can show you your future. Because the friends in your life will determine the potential of your life. This is incredibly true of David. In fact, it was a good friend 
that made the strategic difference in David's life. In David's rise to power, without this friend, chances are David's story would have ended tragically different. Let me give you a little recap on David's story and David's really rise to power. It's kind of bring us through some of the things we talked about. We, we begin actually with King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he, he started out strong, and yet he ended up being about himself, self-centered, made unwise decisions, disobedient, ungodly decisions, and God said, I'm choosing a new king. But Saul was appointed as king in 1050 B.C., David born in 1040 B.C., and 1025 BC, then David is anointed the next king. That's where week one, we started talking about Samuel going and anointing David, this young teenager. In 1020 BC, what we talked last week is David defeats Goliath. And that's what we talked about. And here's what's interesting. David defeats Goliath and a nobody immediately becomes a somebody. A shepherd boy who no one knew his name all of a sudden becomes the talk of town. He went from obscurity to fame. I mean, he was a national hero. And what immediately happened and what Saul had promised anyone who defeats Goliath, they said, hey, by the way, I'm going to let you marry one of my daughters. This just is bringing into the family an honor. I don't know. She, Thankfully, Micah really liked David, so that worked out, but didn't have a choice back then, I guess. Your family's going to be tax-free, which is awesome. Wouldn't that be nice this season around as we got all the new tax laws? And then he became a military commander, and he was highly, highly successful. And so David began to lead men and, uh, into battle and take on different uh, wars. And, and he was so successful that, that the people began to make up songs about him. And they began to sing songs. And unfortunately, as they were making up these songs, they made songs about Saul and began to compare Saul with David. And that's kind of a no-no when you have an insecure, jealous, egotistical king. Because you begin to compare this young warrior boy, young man really, to this older, insecure, jealous king, it will not go well. And they sang, they sang this song that Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands as they had welcomed him home from war. Well, you can only imagine for Saul this did not sit well. And what he saw in David wasn't a young Man that could really help him lead the kingdom, a young person that, that was a great warrior that would advance the kingdom, what he saw was a threat to his kingdom. One day, while David's sitting in the court playing his harp and Saul's on the other side, a fit of rage and anger takes over him. He grabs the spear next to him and hurls it at David's head. And he's thankfully, Dave was quick enough, scrambled out of there. From that day forward, David moved from being the renowned and the national hero to being a hunted and wanted man. From that day forward, the most powerful person in Israel became his fiercest opposition. Saul, instead of being focused on how can he develop the Israel nation, 
became obsessed with how can I take out David. It was a strategic friendship in this season of life. When David literally was wandering in the wilderness that sustained him through the course of that time. See, the moment David conquered Goliath, he made fast friendship with Saul's son, Jonathan. That's kind of fascinating that you you would think if anyone was threatened by David, it would be Jonathan. Jonathan's the heir to the kingdom. He's the heir apparent. And, and Jonathan and David, they were both actually great warriors, and they just had this kindred spirit. It just says that as they met to one another, they just had a unity of heart. They became fast friends. Jonathan had this incredible relationship with him that he wasn't so concerned about his kingdom, and he put this relationship ahead of that. And it was his relationship with Jonathan that sustained him through this season and did you know, we, we read this in, in the Bible when we flip pages, and maybe you've read the story before about, about David, and you realize that there was this season, a period where he's being hunted by Saul. It was 10 years, a decade of his life, from that moment when Saul threw that spear until David was actually welcomed back and only partially in Israel, 10 years of wandering in the wilderness. Initially, David was completely thrown off, began just to react. He, in fact, lied to a priest, which unfortunately got that priest killed by Saul. He, he then runs to Gath, which is the hometown of Goliath, whom he killed and was seeking shelter there because he's like, surely they won't, you know, follow me here. <laughs> And then he gets afraid that they're going to kill him. He acts like a madman. Because that's what happens. We become unhinged. We be, become afraid. He starts drooling and acting like a madman, so they send him away. He, he then's hiding out in, in this mountainous terrain, and he wandered through there. And, and through the course of time, these, these groups of misfits began to gather around him. And it, it says that they were discontents and distressed and in debt. And that's the kind of people you want when you're in crisis. And it says, I love this, and he became their commander. Like, woo! Can you imagine, though, for David? I mean, just imagine going from the shepherd field to the battlefield, being a national hero where they're singing your name. (laughs) And then in one fell swoop, You're a wanted man running from the most powerful person. And whatever dreams you had in front of you, they feel dashed. In fact, you can read many psalms that David wrote in this season. Why, O Lord, have you left me? Vanquish my foes. Hear my prayer. Ten years. Let me say something just about the wilderness, and this is a little bit of a side note, but for some, you're in the wilderness this morning. For some, you've been wandering. For some, God put a dream on your heart, and you got excited, and maybe even there was some initial success, and then all of a sudden, it feels like you've been demoted, and you feel like you're wandering. We see in the Bible that the wilderness is often God's place of preparation, not punishment. And the bigger 
the dream, the longer the preparation. If you study the life of Joseph earlier in the book of Genesis, you'll see that he had this dream that God placed on his heart, and then he gets sold into slavery. Now, Joseph was going to be the second in command of the most powerful nation in the world. And yet he was a slave and a prisoner for 17 years. You even see this in the life of Jesus. In obscurity for 33 years. And then even when he stepped into ministry, going into the wilderness as if to to say, no, 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 this is just the process for 40 days and 40 nights. And for some, you're in the wilderness and you need to know, man, God's using that to refine you and to define some core character in you. The wilderness is not a lifestyle. It's not a way of life. And it isn't a life sentence where you go, okay, this is what God is doing to prepare and work for me. But you know what we need to endure the wilderness? To make sure and help us persevere? What many of us need is a good friend. Someone that says, you know what? I know you're starting to believe lies about you. I know you're starting to believe this is all there is. I know you're starting to get discouraged, but keep your head up. Keep going. Keep trucking along. God hasn't left you. He's with you. He's for you. Don't give up, my friend. That's what you need in the wilderness. It's fascinating. Jonathan, the son of the king who's trying to execute David, was that good friend. Many times he met David to strengthen him. One particular part that I think is just so powerful is Saul is actually pursuing David. He is in the wilderness terrain. It's rocky, it's mountainous, and David is just about one step ahead of Saul and his army. And it's just this cat and mouse game Jonathan gets word of it, and he obviously had a way to communicate and knew where David was, came and met with him. And what I love is chapter 23, 1 Samuel, it says that Jonathan strengthened David in the Lord. One of the things he reminded himself, think about this, the son of the king. One of the things he reminded him about was, don't forget God's actually set you up as the next king. Ooh. See, secure people celebrate other people's successes. Insecure people criticize other people's successes. Good friends are secure. They're not worried about who gets the credit. Good friends go, hey, 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 I'm for you. I'm for you. I'm for you. Don't forget who you are. (laughs) The very next chapter This is so interesting. Like Saul's right on his heels. They escape into a cave and they hide all the way in the back of this big, deep cave. And they're hoping that Saul and his army will just pass by and they'll just have escaped. (laughs) What's interesting is right at that moment, Saul had to use the bathroom. And so a king's not going to go out in the open. He goes up into a random cave. And, there's, and this is the Judean uh, wilderness. Lots and lots of mountains and caves like this. And he just picks one. Just so happens to be the same one that David is in. 
all the way in the back, his guys are looking at him going, now's the time. We've been hunted by this guy. He's been pursuing you. He wants to kill you. You now can kill him and take the kingdom, which, by the way, is really bad advice. If he would have killed Saul in that moment, though it sounded good in the moment, though it looked promising, you can even justify it, and his friends did. His, his, his men around him said, see, God has delivered him into your hands. Don't we spiritualize things for decisions that we want to make? Well, it would have caused a bloody, bloody civil war. He would have killed the anointed of God and disobeyed and would have opened up a whole level of infighting. Absolutely devastating. And so David says, no. That one moment was such a turning moment, a point of trusting God in the midst of the wilderness and letting him be your defender and not taking your own cause. And it was the encouragement, the strength of a good friend at the right moment that allowed him to have the endurance and the clarity to make a critical decision in the wilderness land. See, the friendships of your life will determine the potential of your life. David's, uh, Jonathan's friendship, his encouragement was vital to David's success in navigating the wilderness. I, I want to take the next few moments and just look at the life of Jonathan and his friendship with David and, and answer this. What does a good friend look like? I, I don't know that we know what a good friend looks like anymore. We want a good friend. We hope for a good friend. But what does a good friend look like? And in Jonathan, we discover four character traits of a good friend. The first trait or the first quality of a good friend is a rugged commitment to one another. It's this rugged commitment to one another. It says in 1 Samuel 18, 1 and verse 3, uh, after David had finished talking to Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And Jonathan made a covenant. That's a big and that's a powerful word. It's this rugged commitment to you. It's, we want transactional relationships. We have contractual relationships. You do for me, and I'll do for you. It's the cell phone reality. I paid for this, so I expect this out of it. And when you don't follow your side of the contract, then I'm out of it. A covenant says, here's what I'm committing to. And that's it. It's a rugged commitment. Uh, we did a series in the fall called Basics, and one of the talks was on unfiltered friendships. Uh, I defined an unfiltered friend this way, an intimate, life-giving, character-shaping friendship that has a rugged commitment to one another. You know what type of friend this is? It, well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not a fair-weather friend. It's not one of those when it looks good and it works for them, when, when it's nice and easy, when everything's rosy and sunny. It's a, hey, come hell or high water, friend. I'm in it with you. In the sports world, what we have is you see a team that does really great and their, you know, rise to power. Uh, what happens? Like the Warriors, give an example of a great team, the best team ever in basketball history. Better than the 96 Bulls. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know what you have? 
you have bandwagoners. You have people that jump on the bandwagon and they go, all right, hey, cool. I love the Warriors. Well, did you love them when they sucked, when they were terrible, when they were no good? No, but they have Steph Curry. Well, they actually weren't very good with Curry for a little while. I don't know if you remember that. And they have Clay Thompson and Draymond Green. And they have KD. See, a true fan loves them when they're good and when they're not. I am a true fan of the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Let's see how many true fans of the 49ers. Let's just be real, okay? Here's the deal. I've gone through lots of sorrow over the last decade as a true fan. We had the 90s, and it was great. But I am a Cowboys fan. My boys are Cowboys fans. You know why? Because their dad is a Cowboys fan. And Cowboys are God's team, and wise men still follow the star. Um, And so... Good friends have a rugged commitment. It's not when life's just going well, when everything's easy. It says, you know what? Hey, I'm in it with you. I'm committed to you. Let me just make a comment. If I might, ladies, hang on. Hey, guys, okay, I'm going to address guys and then ladies, but let's just own up. We're not real good at relationships. And many guys think they don't need a good friend. And it's just not true. Ladies, you're generally more relationally in tune than we are. But can I just say something that I've seen? Your unforgiveness and bitterness is killing your friendships. You know, us guys, we're we're maybe not good communicators, many of us don't hold on to bitterness very long. And it stems back to the playground because when you got in a fight on the playground, you could get in a fight with that guy and then be best friends the next day. And something happens, and I just got to tell you, I've watched it in our church and I've watched it in the church where someone didn't invite you somewhere. You saw something on Instagram and you're like, oh my goodness, someone said something. And this unforgiveness that festers and builds to bitterness is killing your friendships. And where you go, yeah, welcome to life. Your friend's going to hurt your feelings. Get over it. There's going to be times where we step on each other's toes. We're all broken. We all have stuff and issues that we're going through. But where you go, I'm going to work through it instead of work around you. I'm going to work through it instead of talk about you. And I have a rugged commitment to you. Uh, my pastor in Chicago, James McDonald, says this, there, is, there are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. Would you make a rugged commitment? To one another. One of the character traits for Jonathan, a good friend, is a rugged commitment. The second is a willingness to sacrifice for the other. It's a willingness to sacrifice. A good friend is not stingy, selfish, or self-centered. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David. Jonathan had nothing to gain and everything to lose from this friendship. And Jonathan, the heir apparent, the son of the king, David, a warrior, there is a battle here. One is higher in authority. And what he does in this moment is he levels the playing field. 
says, I'm going to take my royal robe, my royal garb, and simply say, here you go. I'm not going to hold my position over you. See, I'm your friend, and all that I have is yours and that your resource. He says, hey, his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Um, it's the idea of mikasa es su casa. Right? My house is your house. You know when you're good friends? is when someone is able to come into your house and not knock and you're not surprised. You know? When someone comes into your house and they don't knock and you're caught off guard, you let them know first, like, whoa, that's, that, that's called uh, breaking an entry. <laughs> but when they can just walk in, hey, you're like, hey. When they can hang out and eat in your fridge, they don't ask anything. For some, you're asking, wanting your roommates to start asking. But there's a willingness to sacrifice for the other where you say, my time, my resources, my energy, I'll help you move. You want to talk? You're going through a hard time? A, a good friend, you, don't, you know that at midnight you can give them a call and you know that even though they're going to wake up, they'll be there for you. A good friend will walk through you during the difficult times of life. A good friend will drop by maybe a gift unexpected just thinking of you. They'll celebrate your highs and they'll hurt with your lows. I'm going to be honest. Some of you are looking to the church or a pastor to fill the void of a good friend. See, we do missional communities for this. Part of missional communities is this idea of family. That you might not walk in as a good friend, but you begin to build a relationship. And friendship takes time, doesn't it? It takes investment. You can't microwave good friendships. you got to crockpot it. You do. And missional communities where you begin to make a rugged commitment to one another and say, I'm in. That commitment then leads to a willingness to sacrifice for the other. And until you make a commitment, you'll never get a significant friendship. And you won't grow, by the way. And for some, that's what you needed to hear this morning. It's like, okay, I've been a bandwagoner with the church. And I've been going, here's what happens in the church. We come here, when you hit a crisis, what's going on? Where were they? But I never invested in any relationship. I never went deep with anybody. You come and you're like, oh, this church is so great. The music's awesome. Ryan's good. This is awesome. And then like, you know, two years later, you're like, oh, everybody's like, they're so clicky. And Ryan, he just doesn't feed me. Well, I've got news for you. Feed yourself. And I went through this season and no one was there. And Ryan, you should have been there or the church should have been there. That's what missional communities are for, to help create this space for you to grow in community, to develop. But it takes this willingness to sacrifice, to go, okay, what's mine is yours. I'm not going to be stingy with my time. I'm going to be available. A good friend, rugged commitment, willingness to sacrifice, and then a loyal defense before others. A loyal defense. Jonathan 
son of the king, spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, notice, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and he has done what has benefited you greatly. He's talking to his dad, the most powerful person in the nation, who wants to kill his best friend. Now talk about some tension. And he's helping him see with clarity what's reality. Dude, David hasn't done anything. In fact, he's only helped you and he's advanced the cause of Israel. See, a good friend is a loyal defense. What we often do is we just sit by silently And in our silence, when someone is speaking negatively, it actually gives our silent voice of approval. Or when they're not around, we might talk about them, but we'd never say it to their face. See, a good friend. (laughs) A good friend, and they not only have good things and are for you in front of you, they say good stuff behind your back. Because a good friend has your back. A good friend's going to step up. Someone's starting to talk about you. Hang on, time out. No, 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 no. That's my friend. Well, did you know? Blah, 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 blah. Time out. I've known them forever. Come on now. And we cloak our backstabbing in the church as a prayer request. So-and-so, oh, they're really doing this. No, no, no. It's called gossip. It's a sin. And it destroys anyone from ever trusting you when they're not in your presence. Uh, Last year, uh, we had uh, the most divisive person that I have ever experienced in church world. I've been a pastor 15 years, and this person, I've never experienced uh, someone like this. It It was just slander in the he went after me, which there's parts of that. I get that. I'm the, the front guy, and I talk a lot. And there's sometimes I say stuff that you don't like and, or you just don't like my personality. I'm like, okay. But then, there's a, then he went after every single leader, began to marshal, and anyone who would listen, he would just talk to. And here's what's the interesting part. We're all going to have critics, and the, the hard part about critics is there's always a kernel of truth. And that kernel of truth connected to that body of lies begins to seep into our hearts, doesn't it? I'm so grateful we have an incredible uh, team. I mean, the people around me and this church, it it was unbelievable. But there was one young man that was a part of this conversation. And I remember this guy who was very decisive telling me all this stuff about this young man. And I just stopped him. I said, time out. Because this young man happens to be a man that I think the world of, I've watched over the course of years, his character, his integrity, he lives a winsome life, and he is a guy that I just couldn't think more of. You're telling me all this crap about him. I've known you two months. I've known him for years. Guess who I'm believing? And by the way, that's not welcome Here, it needs to stop. A good friend has a loyal defense. I remember one conversation with this young man because our critics, man, they want your ear, and then the minute you don't listen to them, then they start to attack you. 
And as he began to address some of the things, like, hang on, this doesn't seem to be right, this isn't true, then he began to be attacked. And I remember talking to him on the phone, and he was so broken. Because some of his friends, like the people he considered his friends, believed this guy and what they were saying about him. It wasn't the pain, and it is the pain of someone saying something about you. That hurts. But when the people you call your friends that have journeyed life with you turn on you, when, when they should at least come and ask and said, hey, is this right? Is this true? Did this really happen? We become bandwagoners on the critic side as well. And a good friend says, time out. <laughs> no. See, in the church... We let too much of that go instead of going, have you talked to the person? No, 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 don't tell me. Have you talked to the person? No, 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 but I I need to, we really need to pray about this. I don't need to pray about it. I have a verse about it. And since I have a verse about it, God already spoke about it. So I'm not questioning God's will. His will is for you to talk about it to the person, not talk about them behind their back. Go to the person. Tell you what, the church will be powerful when we start doing that. When we start addressing difficult issues instead of avoiding difficult people, instead of talking behind one another's back. A good friend has a loyal defense and then finally is a constant source of encouragement. That moment I was sharing earlier as we were talking about the life and journey of David in the wilderness, it said, 1 Samuel 23, while David was at Horash in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come to take his life. That's not fun. And Saul's son went to David at Horash and helped him find strength in the Lord. How good is that? That a good friend is a constant source of encouragement. To encourage means to strengthen, to infuse courage. Like, think about this. To encourage someone isn't just to say all the good things about them. There's certainly that place. It's to put your coach hat on. What does a good coach do? The good coach is to strengthen, to infuse, to go, man, I, I want to draw out the best. There's times where, where to encourage someone is a loving rebuke. And there's times where to encourage them is, is just a word of hope and life. I'll tell you, one of the ways my wife encourages me when I get into the moody blues and down and life's terrible and then I'm not really fun to be around, you know what she says to me? She says this, hey, Ryan, you need to go for a run. I'm like, I don't want to run. <laughs> well, she knows eh, the Ingrams were weird. We just talk about how, you know, we need to get a good sweat on, you know, you get the endorphins going. And there's just something, I, I don't know, we I didn't know it was weird, but we grew up this way. We just thought, yeah, hey, I got a good sweat today. I'm like, that's a conversation we have as, as brothers. And it's, I, I, I thought that was normal, but I was told it's not. Um, but she knows for me, like a run of where I get out in nature, I listen to worship, I get a good sweat. It changes my perspective. It brings encouragement. But when I'm in that low place, I don't want any of that. And so she says... Hey, Ryan, why don't you go for a run? I'm like, no, I'm good. You know what it changes to? Hey, Ryan, go for a run. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I'm fine. Fine, I'm going to go, but I'm going because I want to run, not because you told me to run. 
She's a source of encouragement. We often tell people what they want to hear and not what they need to hear. When I go out to uh, dinner or somewhere, I have the same response whether the food's good or bad. i got to just be honest. The waiter asks, how is it? Or waitress asks, how is it? I say, it's amazing. Whether it's amazing or not. One, I just don't want you to spit in my food. Two, I'm a weenie, and I want you to like me. But we do that with our friends. And we tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. But do we tell them what they need to hear in a tone of love? And by the way, it's hard for us to receive that, and we get defensive. But friends, I just got to tell you, if you have someone who has a rugged commitment to you, who's willing to sacrifice for you, and has been a loyal defense before others for you, you can hear those loving rebukes. I encourage you, hear those loving rebukes. Why? Because the friendships of your life will determine the potential in your life. I want to just, as we close, just answer this question. How do you make good friends? Like, okay, that's awesome. Those are traits of a good friends. But how do we really make a good friend like that? Um, David had <laughs> mighty men, and we we're talking about it earlier says in 1 Samuel 22, all those who are in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around them and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. And I just I think this is so important not to pass by. Perhaps the good friend in your life that God wants to use in your life is someone that you would never expect and that's unlikely. It was this motley crew that God used in, to turn into David's mighty men. Maybe you've overlooked people in your life because they're different than you. You're an artist. They're an engineer. You don't even speak the same language. Maybe they overlooked you're in a different stage of life. And you begin to look around you and don't underestimate the people that God's put around you. Let me just give you three things for making good friends. First, pray for a good friend. Pray for a good friend. If it's true. If it's true that who you surround yourself will either limit or unleash your God-given potential, this should be an important note of prayer. I can't remember how long ago it was, but I remember Jenny telling me, Ryan, you need friends. (laughs) And I think, like I said, us guys, some of us, we really struggle with this, right? Um, I'm good. I don't need friends. In fact, I'm kind of introverted. I'm like this mix, extra introvert. I need, like, and my focus ever since we had a family was work, ministry, and my family. Don't have time for friends. And she looked at me and said, you know, this, that was, her hand was waving to me. It's like, it's a lot. Like, it's a lot for me. You, you, you need some friends. Okay, well, I'll start praying for friends. Just the other day, we're sitting, talking, and just looking at the people God has surrounded us with and the friendships 
that he's put around us, it just was like, are you kidding me? Like God answers that prayer. Would you pray for friends? Second, then ask to be friends. Like, ask. Remember, in, when you were kids, on the playground, you would go up to the person and you would say, want to be friends? Remember that, right? You'd just go up to them and go, want to be, be friends? And then you'd go, yeah, sure, that sounds great. I'd love to be friends. And then for the next hour, you're best friends, whether you see them again or not. But too often, we're sitting, waiting for someone to ask us, waiting for someone to take the initiative, and we're complaining, nobody wants to be my friend. Look, they're going, having all that fun, and nobody's my friend. Ask. Take the initiative. Ask someone. Now, don't ask them, would you make a rugged commitment to me? Be willing to sacrifice yourself? (laughs) Don't do that. Ask them, would you like to grab coffee? Would you like to hang out? Would you like to go on a hike? Would you like to go whatever you love doing? Would you like to watch the Super Bowl? But ask, take the initiative. Quit waiting for everyone else to make the first step. Why? Because if somebody asked you, even if they just said it this way, want to be friends? It would feel like really honoring, wouldn't it? Really valuing to you. You're like, well, that's weird. Nobody's asked that since elementary, but that's kind of cool. And by the way, can I just give you this? Because some of you, you already know who you want to ask, but because Ryan talked on it, you feel like there's a certain amount of time you have to wait until you share. <laughs> well, I can't text them back yet. I got to wait. I can't call her back yet. I got to wait three days. Okay, I've already addressed it. You can leave this room and go, want to be friends, all right? Ask. Don't wait. Do it. Pray, ask, and then simply be a good friend. Be a good friend. We, we, don't, we don't ask, hey, how can I find good friends? We ask the question, how can I be a good friend? Let me go back through that list of a good friend. Okay, okay who are the people in my life I'm, I'm going to make a rugged commitment to? You don't need to let them know that. It's evidenced by those times of willingly sacrificing for them when you defend their honor. When when you go, you know what, I'm going to be the voice of encouragement. But would you be a good friend? I'll tell you what, you start to be a good friend, you'll find that you have great friends all around you. And here's what's fascinating. Because I think being a good friend is incredibly difficult. I think it actually is impossible if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus invited us to be his friends. When you think about Jesus, think about this rugged commitment that he made to you. A willingness to sacrifice to the cross. As you know, like like to defend for you. I mean, look at this, this loyal defense. You may not know this, but the adversary, the devil, is standing before the throne of the Heavenly Father and casting insults and saying why you don't deserve grace. And Jesus is right there saying, I'm your defense. Paid for it. What else you got? 
paid for it. Thank you very much. No, no, no. He is your loyal defense. He has your back. And then you lean into him as a source of encouragement. And when we get our relationship right with Jesus, when we understand the good friendship of God, man, it frees you up to be a good friend to those around you. Why don't you stand and we'll close. Jesus, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the time together. God, I pray uh, for the person here that has never started a relationship with you, never knew they could have a friendship with God, that in this moment that you would give them just the inkling to go to the prayer or come forward or just to call out to you, God, I want to be friends with you. Like, like that ask, like you respond to that ask and that they would experience your life and your grace. God, would you make us a community with such pool power that we would really believe we're better together. I mean, I just imagine this incredible group, and if we just began to pull together what you would want to do that, that multiplies what any individual could do. And so would you make us a church that pulls together to advance your kingdom, your grace, and your love, all for the glory of Jesus. Amen.